Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2. So we'll read 10 through 19, but before we do that, let me pray one more time. Father, we come before you now, and we want to thank you for giving us a new day with new mercies, and especially a day when we can gather together and worship you. We trust that what we've done here this morning already has been pleasing to you and a blessing to one another. Um, but we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help that to be the case, especially now as we look at your word and seek to understand your heart towards us and what the gospel really is and how it should impact the way that we live and move and have our own being individually and as a church. Holy Spirit, would you be in our midst and help us to read Mark Pay attention and inwardly digest what it is that you want us to know. Jesus, would you show us more of your heart this morning? And would you knit our hearts together? And Father, we pray that we would feel your pleasure this morning in what we do. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is that? Did you hear it? Oh. We'll deal with it right now. No. Haggai 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with, or so is it rather with these people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day forward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were only twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So it's now December 18th. 520 BC. We're um, three months from Haggai's first message, and he steps forward to preach this third message, and it's an interesting one. Um, 
on the surface. I, I'm sure any, you, you can read this and take something practically from it that, that's meaningful to you. But contextually, it's very interesting. And therefore, I think the practical implications of it are maybe a little bit more surprising than it appears on the surface. The question that gets asked is, and, and it, the, the priests are called forth to answer, to testify, if someone carries holy meat in their pocket, basically, and then he brushes up against some bread or some stew or some wine or some, some other food, does that thing then become holy by osmosis? And the answer is no, it, it certainly doesn't. However, if someone who is unclean because they've come in contact with a dead body brushes up against some stew or some bread or some wine or some oil, does that become unclean? And the answer is yes, it does. Well, I think it's helpful to understand what's being discussed here because if you're not a, a Bible scholar and you haven't been diligently through Numbers and Leviticus, then you might not be sure what's, wh what the topic is. So I'm going to try to give you the, you know, the 15,000-foot view of what's happening. After the Exodus, right? And we've all seen Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments movie. <laughs> After the Exodus, the people of God are instructed through Moses very specifically what they can and can't eat, what they can and can't do with their physical bodies, and what the result of violating those restrictions would be. So if you eat this, you're unclean for X number of days. If you do that, you're unclean for X number of days. And then <clears throat> the consequence of being unclean was you had to be put outside the camp for a certain number of days, depending on what the defilement was. It's helpful to understand what the purpose or the design of that ceremonial law was. Because you might read it and go, oh, it's just arbitrary stuff that God came up with to make life more difficult so that they would appreciate Jesus more when he came. Which isn't, you know, I suppose out of the question. But there's, there's really two designs to the ceremonial law. First, there's the practical design. If you are surrounded by a culture that likes to do things like eat raw meat, drink animal blood, accidentally eat rotten meat, uh, engage in promiscuous behaviors that certainly transmit diseases. If you're surrounded by a culture that engages in those kinds of things and you want to live, then you would want to not engage in those kinds of things because if you eat raw meat, you can get sick. And if you eat certain insects and shellfish and things like that, there are parasites that, that can invade you and make you miserable and you can pass those things on to other people. The behaviors that the culture around Israel engaged in carried with them an inherent risk to health, just practically speaking. So, God institutes these restrictions on food and practices, and if you violated them, you were unclean because, odds are, you're contagious. Right? So the poor Smiths just had a bout with salmonella, and I learned something I did not know about salmonella from Andy, and that is that you don't just get it from eating something that you really don't want to know that you ate but you actually shed it yourself to the point where you, you're like you can infect other people with 
salmonella once you have it. And then in Andy's case, I also learned that it triggers a form of excruciating arthritis. So when you already have rheumatoid arthritis like Andy does and your kid eats somebody's stuff and then they get and then they get you sick it like there's this whole so it would have been better if john and, and andy had put was it levi levi out of the house <laughs> for 21 days until he became clean again but we we don't have to do that anymore and it, i don't think a mom would ever want to do that so that's the practical design second and more importantly it was designed to be a picture the law the ceremonial law was designed to depict for the people how bad sin is, how pervasive sin is, and how difficult sin is to atone for. If you are like me and you like mammals, I used to say I like animals, but then I realized that my aversion to reptilian species <laughs> makes it so I have to be more specific. If you like furry animals that carry their babies in their womb, um, then the ceremonial law would be very difficult for you to uphold because you're talking about a system where atonement is accomplished through the slaughter of mammalian creatures. There was one historian, and I've never, I've, I read it once and I've never been able to find it again. It was a firsthand account of the Day of Atonement just prior to the fall of, of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And in this account, he describes, and he's not being hyperbolic, a river of blood flowing from the temple as animal after animal after animal is sacrificed to atone for sins. Knowing that God required the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins should have made sinning less fun and more difficult, right? Because if you like that cow, you don't want to have to drag it up to the altar and slit its throat. It doesn't sound like until it's time to eat it. And then if you're me, you hire somebody else to do that, right? But it's important to understand that the prescriptions of the ceremonial law did not actually atone for sins. So look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me. I confess I was a believer for a number of years before I really understood all of this. So if you... Uh, don't have, like you already grasp these things and this is just review for you. Bless God that you had good teachers and maybe a good study Bible. Um, and I'm not trying to belabor the point. I just want to make sure we all understand these things. So Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So um, we're going to come back to this, but just listen for a second while I kind of re-say that. What the writer of Hebrews just said is that the ceremonial sacrificial system was never designed to actually atone for sins. So cutting open a an animal and bleeding it out on the altar did not make you any more holy than you were before you started. Why do it then? Why would God institute this system? So he says, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Think about that. What he's saying is you have a nature problem, 
right? We've got a sin nature because in Adam, we have fallen. We're different than we were originally created to be. So we have this inclination in us to do that which is unrighteous and do that which is wicked. In fact, all of us have probably had the experience of having no desire to violate the law until we were aware of the law. You, you, like, I was fine until I heard I'm not allowed to do that, and then every fiber of my being wanted to do that. The surest way to get me to trounce all over your yard is to put up a no trespass. <laughs> that's what I'm, like, that's the nature that we have as sinners. So the writer of Hebrews says, look, if killing a goat atoned for sins, it would deal with your nature, and you would no longer sin. But it doesn't. So it was a shadow. It pointed toward a reality that was coming. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why does God ask these questions in Haggai of the priests in front of all the people? Is he real worried that they're making food unclean accidentally? Is that the issue? Nope, I don't think so. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind has become holy, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest said, yes. Then Haggai said, so it is with these people and with this whole nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. So think about this. Not only does the animal sacrifice not make you holy so that you can make other things holy by proximity, but point of fact, we are, they were, we are defiled to the point where everything we interact with in one sense is worse for having come in contact with us. That's what God's saying when he says, so it is with all these people and all the work of their hands. It's unclean. It's not a good thing. So plain and simple, there's three truths. First, participating in the building of the temple does not make you holy. Practically speaking, that's what God is telling the people through Haggai. Participating in the building of the temple is not making you holy. Second, apart from God, we defile everything that we come in contact with. Said another way, planting a church in Springfield does not make you holy. In fact, our very involvement here makes this thing unclean. Well, that's encouraging. It's <laughs> a good way to kick off a church plant. And then there's a third thing. We're going to see this in a few minutes. It is that sorrow over circumstances does not automatically lead to a changed heart. So if you want to have your notes in order, just go ahead and scribble that down. Sorrow over circumstances does not automatically lead to a changed heart. So first, doing Christian things doesn't make you holy. Second, in fact, because you're not holy, everything you touch becomes defiled, left to yourself. And third, sorrow over your circumstances. What did I say? Yeah, exactly. I don't even know where I am in my notes. Oh, sorrow over circumstances doesn't automatically lead to a changed heart. So, 
How do we plant a church with filthy hands? How do we develop in community if we're just like making things worse all the time for one another? And all of us can say in our honest moments, and I don't need you to say it out loud, but all of us can say, I've had a problem with somebody at church before. I've come to church and left worse because of it before. Right? So we get that part. We get that other people are defiling this thing. Right? But what's hard for us is to realize that we are, with our motives and intentions and our unpure thoughts and the, the things that flit through our minds and hearts, if building the church doesn't make us holy, but rather, according to this passage, makes the church unholy, what are we doing here? So let's look at verse 15. If I could find it. Oh, it's on the next page. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? So go back. Haggai is saying, go back to before you all repented and started the work again. How were things going before that? So some of you might have noticed I didn't do a 38-minute review this morning before I started my sermon because there's no need. I know you've all got it, and Haggai is doing it for us, right? So go back. Remember when you came to a heap of 20 measures and there were only 10. You came to the vat to draw 50 measures of wine. There were only 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet, you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Well, that's interesting. God rehearses the point that was made in the very first message. He reminds the people that they were not engaged in the work, and in fact, were preoccupied with building their own houses. And as a result, their crops were being ruined by drought, their oil and wine had run out, their wages went into a bag with holes, and every expectation of their heart was met with a certain level of discouragement. Why is he bringing this up now? They turned, they're doing the work. Why would you remind everybody of what a bunch of hags they used to be? It seems like they got the point, right? So the outcome of disobedience is always dissatisfaction, right? We've covered that. I'll say it again, but the outcome of disobedience is always dissatisfaction. My favorite illustration of this, it's a very silly one, but it's my favorite because... It was just an adorable moment. I used to pastor with a youth pastor named Sam, and he was easily one of the funniest people that I ever met. And one day we were up at the church and we had both decided to bring our guns with us. And this was before it was real popular to carry a handgun everywhere you went. Um, and, you know, when you're in your early 20s and you have a firearm, it's difficult to resist the urge to discharge the firearm. Doug is panicking right now. <laughs> Just so you know. He's my instructor. He has since taught me, and I've remedied my ways. Well, we were sitting in the church office. Nobody else was there. It was probably like a Thursday afternoon. Nobody else was there, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pop open the back sanctuary door, and I'm just going to rock off one round into the ground because I think it'd be funny, right? And he said, dude, you're going to do that? 
and it's going to be funny, but then it's going to be nothing but anxiety afterwards. <laughs> and I did it, and he was right. Uh, the outcome of disobedience to the law is always discouragement. So kids, you think if I just do this thing that I really, really, really want to do, I'll feel satisfied. But then when you do the thing that you really, really, really want to do that's wrong, it always leads to fear and shame and guilt, right? The outcome of disobedience is always dissatisfaction and discouragement. And then it leads to frustration about the past, concern about the present, and anxiety about the future. It's an amazing thing when we're disobedient. It upsets every facet of what we can't control. What's already happened, what's currently happening, and what's yet going to happen, we become consumed about managing the details of those things because our hearts are in a discouraged state. And God wants the people to grasp this, so he reminds them, remember what it was like before you started the work. But look at verse 17 again. I struck you and all the products of your toil and blight with mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me declares the Lord. Listen, this is so important. I'm going to say it at least three different ways, but it's going to take me a minute to say it three different ways, okay? Hopefully you get one of these. Did Answer this question in your own head. Did frustration, concern, or anxiety over their circumstances make them repent? Listen, did frustration, concern, and anxiety over their circumstances make them repent, according to verse 17. No. No, it did not. So I reject this idea, and I hope you'll reject it with me. I reject this idea that hitting rock bottom necessarily moves sinners out of darkness into light. Nowhere in scripture is that taught. It's a Roman Catholic notion that personal misery induces anyone to embrace the gospel. And maybe it's unfair to lay that entirely at the feet of Rome, but that's where I see it most predominantly in the quote-unquote Christian church. Personal misery. And look, let's not say enlightenment, like enlightenment doesn't follow personal ministry or misery because it does. But personal misery and the enlightenment, which so often does follow it, does not regenerate dead sinners. The Holy Spirit regenerates dead sinners. Not circumstances. The gospel does not prescribe sacrificial obedience as a remedy for sin. So important that we understand that. The gospel does not prescribe sacrificial obedience to God as a remedy for past sins. The gospel prescribes faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to me. The economy of mercy does not operate on a performance gauntlet. You are not proving anything to Jesus. That's not why you're sad sometimes or life is difficult sometimes. 
We are not going to earn approval from God by coming to our senses and getting on the path of obedience. Do you hear me? Because this is not what the church teaches. What I'm saying right now, understand, is heresy against the popular gospel. It's nothing like what the church teaches. We do not earn approval from God by coming to our senses and getting on the path of obedience. Is God pleased with obedience? It's okay. The answer is yes. It's not a trick question. Is God pleased with obedience? Yes. Yes. Does God delight in obedience? Yes. Yes. Are we profoundly better off when we obey? Yes. Yes. However, building the temple doesn't make you holy. Being obedient doesn't make you holy, and keeping commandments doesn't make you holy. You can't do these things if you aren't first saved from sin by faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, verse 17 would say, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, and thus you repented and turned to me. But that's not what it says, because that isn't what happened. And it isn't what's happened to you if you're a child of God. I'm going to say it one more way. If the difficulties of life, the pain and sorrow, the disappointment and dissatisfaction, misery and frustration of human existence were the means of redemption, two things would be true. If the difficulties of your life were the means of your redemption, two things would be true. First, it would be the goal of the church to make sinners as miserable as possible so that they might get saved. Now you understand why so many pastors and churches behave the way they do. They don't understand this. Second, if the difficulties of life were the means of redemption, second, you would be forced to constantly question whether or not you had ever become miserable enough to get saved. This is why you languish under the shadow of residual guilt from sins done years ago because you're just not sure if you were sorry enough, as though your sorrow leads to your redemption, and it doesn't. That nonsense leads people who are in seasons of pain and sorrow to assume that they need to fix something in their relationship with God in order for their circumstances to improve. Look, people hung on crosses and died. And it wasn't because God didn't love them. You can get real sick and real miserable and it can go on for days and weeks and months And it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because you need to fix something in your relationship with him. Every time you find yourself in a difficult season of life, you will doubt God's delight in you unless you break free of this mindset that your personal misery is cultivating holiness. So to prove my point, look how the message concludes. Consider from this day onward, From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? The answer is no, it's not. It got planted, right? 
Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. So he's saying the reason that you lack is not for a lack of effort. It's not like you haven't sown much. It's just that you're not harvesting anything, okay? But from this day on, I will bless you. <laughs> this is the gospel implication of your circumstances. Have you sown much and harvested little? And I think all of us in different seasons of life could say, yeah, I have. So we could ask questions like this. Is your health failing? Are you having financial difficulties? Is work not going well? Are your children acting like they weren't raised right? Are your friendships breaking and relationships strained? Is your spouse cold? Are you tired, scared, lonely, or discouraged? Yes, Jesus is teaching you something through that. Absolutely. God is using those painful circumstances to work something out in your life. I don't mean to, to say that misery is not a means by which God brings us to our senses, because it most certainly is. When we are sinning, especially when we're profoundly backslidden, like sometimes Christians are. When we're in that condition and we kind of identify with the prodigal son, who it's not the point of that parable at all, but he's in the pig slop and he comes to his senses because of his misery, that is common to human experience. That should be what happens to you. If you're doing something that hurts, you should. Yeah, it's super simple and it has application all through life. But it doesn't make us holy. So look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly grief, this is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So godly grief produces what godly grief produces repentance that's what the text says human misery does not produce that so there must be a difference between just being miserable and having a godly grief what do you suppose the difference is well worldly grief produces death so listen if you are in the midst of some besetting sin and your life is troubled as a result of it, you're doing something and so you're in pain. And mainly, predominantly, what you're experiencing is self-pity. That's worldly sorrow. But if what you're experiencing is your conscience is being pressed on by the Holy Spirit, and you have a desire to go and confess that sin to God so that you can turn away from it, that's godly sorrow. 
that produces a repentance without regret. That produces eagerness to clear yourself, indignation over your own bad behavior, fear of God, the kind where you get to the point where you are so afraid of God that you're not afraid of anything else anymore. Godly sorrow produces these things, longing for heaven, for holiness, zeal for the house of God, punishment of those members of your body that still want to pursue unrighteousness, the discipline of your fleeting heart and your mind set on the flesh, and you prove yourselves innocent in the matter. So, question, do you need to repent? Do you need to weep over some sin in your life? Have you been an unfaithful spouse? Have you been an unfair parent? A lazy employee? A drunk? An addict? A liar? A cheater? A gossip? A fake friend? A self-absorbed, lecherous jerk? Then you should weep. You should be miserable. I hope that you are. Then you should go to the foot of the cross and see the Savior hanging there. Miserable, bleeding, dying. And appreciate that God very well might take away your money, your crops, your job, your family, your friendships, and whatever else he needs to take. But the goal of his discipline is not that you would be sorrowful. The goal of his discipline is that you would be his. Christ hung on the cross to purchase you out of sin because he loves you. Sorrow might just make you aware of a critical missing piece. The people of Haggai had been miserable. They had sown much and they had harvested little, right? We saw that in stark detail. The missing piece, listen, the missing piece was not that they had failed to build the temple which on the surface appears to be the lesson. I struck you with mildew and drought because you, my house was left in ruins. The missing piece was this, meaningful relationship between them and their creator. That was the piece that was missing. The people didn't return to the work because God took away their stuff. The people returned to the work because God changed their hearts. Right. And that's what we need. All the time. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. What we need is God to change our hearts and make us more desperate for him. Because you can know like a ton of good biblical doctrine. And isn't this true? I, I, well, I'll just speak for myself. I need to be reminded every stupid day that what God wants is me to walk with him not for me to get on a performance treadmill. You will never find satisfaction in your circumstances, but you will always find satisfaction in communion with God. So don't build this church. Don't come along with us on this adventure because you think it will make you more holy. It won't. In fact, it'll make you question your sanctification, I promise. Those moments are coming. Let's build this church because we've been commanded to go into all the world and make disciples right? Let's, let's build this church because we see how God, from before the day we were knit together in our mother's womb, 
how he loved us. The promise of blessing that God gives here in contrast with the people's former poverty is the promise of his presence, not the building of the temple. From this day on, I will bless you. What, what day? Like what changed? Crops, money, circumstances? Did any of that change? The pomegranate did not suddenly produce. The wine vats weren't suddenly full. You could say their circumstances hadn't changed. Now, instead of taking time to build their own houses, they were working on the temple of the Lord. But that didn't change the supply that they were missing before. What changed were their hearts and thereby their actions. So Haggai, in closing, preaches this reminder three months into the work because these people, like us, are prone to forget. So you're not alone in that, needing constantly to be reminded that God is like, hey, uh, I'm interested in you. I delight in you. I want to sit and talk and, and, and hold you. That's the heart of God towards you. He wants you. And you can look at your circumstances and how you got into those circumstances, and you can go, why would God want me? But forget that for just a moment and understand that he does. It doesn't make any sense. I agree. It got easier for me to understand when I had kids and they were sick, right? And there's stuff coming out of them that's gross. But you still want to hold them. You still want to comfort them. It's like a little picture of the heart of God towards us. What we're doing here in Springfield, I think, is a good work, but it's not going to make us holy. A genuine relationship with Jesus Christ will do that. Let's pray.